This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm super excited about the guest of today's episode. He is professor of physical activity and health in the University of Southern Queensland. He has written numerous books related to psychology, mental health of physical activity and sedentary behavior. He has also written books like hypnotherapy for weight control clients and even a complete training program to rugby union players. He has published hundreds of scientific articles and has been cited over 40,000 times. Ladies and gentlemen, here is our guest, Professor Stuart Biddle. Welcome, Stuart. Thanks, Ali. Good to be here. All right. Everything good in Down Under and Brisbane? Yeah, it's a great place to live. We're in the middle of winter and it was about 26 degrees today. So uh, nice blue skies, uh, no complaints. <laughs> yeah, in the in the Nordics, it's, it's summer and it's much colder than there. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. All right. So to start with, you have done research quite widely, but what is the thing that you get most excited about the moment? Yeah, actually, that's quite a tough question, but I do enjoy, uh, well, probably two things, I would say. I, I, I get very uh, keen and, and enthusiastic about supervising research and being part of a research team, whether that's with uh, colleagues or with uh, PhD students. Uh, so that that's a, a still a big part of what I like to do. Uh, Topic-wise, I'm still interested in sedentary behavior. Um and I'm, I'm very much interested in behavior change. How can we really find something that's meaningful for behavior change? We can write about things. We can talk about things. We can make some suggestions, but I, I still don't think we really got that nailed down. And there's a lot of work still to be done around behavior change and what's realistic about changing people's behavior in, uh, in the physical activity domain. So I, I guess those are some of the things that still interest me uh, late in my career. Mm, yeah. So behavior change, what, what do you see as the most promising new findings in the behavior change research? What's what's new, new from the latest ones? Well, I, I am quite taken by some of these frameworks for example the behavior change wheel that's been proposed by Susan Mickey and colleagues in London now some people would say well it's just another model there are lots of models and frameworks out there and that's true and nothing's perfect but I think it does give us a nice framework to to think about behavior change and to put it in a language that's quite understandable by a wide range of people and I think that's quite important so what happened early in my career is I, I always thought behavior change was simply a matter of psychology you just change somebody's psychology and things will happen and I don't really believe that anymore I, I'm not saying that psychology is not important it, it's very important but it has to be within the wider context of people's environments so I think things like the behavior change wheel and wider frameworks of understanding people within a context is is probably where it's it's, it's going to happen. Um, so I, I've kind of shifted a bit from being just a psychologist to I hope a slightly wider looking um, behavior change or behavioral scientist uh, interested in in these behaviors. All right. And when you say wider framework, are you talking also about the environment and sociology or what do you mean with the wider framework? 
yes, I think uh, we, we do need to, to bear those in mind. I mean, we've known for many years, for example, that social inequalities and social structures in societies have a, a strong role to play in, in health, both in health behaviours and therefore health outcomes. Uh, for example, if you only have to look in Australia and, and look at the indigenous population, uh, they have uh, extremely poor health outcomes uh, compared with uh, white European Australians. Uh, some of that is due to um, you know, social structures and socioeconomic position. So we can't ignore those things. Of course, they're incredibly difficult to, to work with sometimes, but I, I, I think I've become more... Um, more comfortable with saying that a solution to a problem, whether it's obesity or diabetes or whatever, is complex. We have to recognize complexity. And we, of course, we want to find practical solutions. And so complexity is not an end in itself. But you know, unless we recognise that complexity, we're going to go in with some rather naive assumptions and naive um, suggestions for, for solutions. So, yes, it must involve social and, and, and physical environmental uh, context uh, to, to, to look at behaviour change. Mm. And and you, you said about the behaviour change wheel. Uh, what what do you see at this, its biggest advantages? Well, first of all, it does um, uh, start with a you know pretty simple conceptualization that behavior is, is a function of motivation, but also opportunity um, and people's capabilities. Um, so that's the so-called combi model. Um, and within the motivation element, they recognize uh, the typical reflective forms of motivation like planning and thinking and goal setting and what have you. And that's formed the cornerstone of much of the psychology of physical activity. Uh, but at the same time, they recognize more automatic forms of motivation and less conscious forms of, uh, of, of operating. And, and I think those are important. You know, we go into the supermarket and, and we pick things up, uh, not always that consciously. We're, we're, we're persuaded by signs and, uh, and uh, affective responses and, and gut reactions uh, as we are when we buy other products or indeed when we become physically active or sedentary. So I think that combination of more reflective and more automatic forms of motivation is a, a good recognition of, of, of developments in that field. Um, but the other thing about the behavior change wheel is it does put things in, in the wider context of, of uh, intervention functions. You know, we, we could do environmental interventions. We could do uh, in, in, interventions that... that uh, um, Uh, operate at a level of incentivizing people or reinforcing people. And that takes place within the wider policy framework. So it, it's quite a nice uh, layered approach. And I believe it was developed to help uh, policymakers and, and even politicians see the, the core elements of behavior change in, in a language that people can understand. So it's got pretty good practical appeal as well. Mm, yeah, and do you see it more fitting for exercise behavior change or sedentary behavior, or does it fit to many things of behavior change in general? Yeah, it should fit across a number of behaviors, and that and it has been applied in that way. Um, if people are interested in 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 this particular framework, and there are other frameworks, by the way, but if they're interested in that, then uh, you, you know articles and there's a book on it, and there's a website. You you can. You can see that it's been applied to, um, you know, nutrition, smoking, physical activity, and so on. So the underlying principles of changing people's behavior is the key, um, and and the the behavior itself, the, the the physical activity in this case, or sedentary behavior, could could be applied. So we we did a project um, that that's uh, come to an end now, but when just before I left the UK five years ago come to Australia, we, we, we were just getting a grant uh, looking at uh, reducing sitting in the workplace. 
And we use the behavior change wheel to really inform elements of that intervention. And uh, we wrote that up as a separate paper uh, around the development of the intervention and then followed it up with a paper on the outcomes of the intervention. So, you know, in, in, in that sense, it can be uh, it can definitely be applied in, uh, in lots of different ways. All right. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And and you have used it in interventions. Can can single individuals uh, use it by themselves or do you need need kind of a setting around it? Uh, you could use it for, for individuals. Typically, of course, it's used for changing groups and, and populations. But I think some of the principles are still there. I mean, if you look at um, things like the trans-theoretical model where, you know, we weigh up pros and cons of changing ourselves and we look at our self-efficacy and we, we look at strategies or processes of change that we might use, um, that's a theory that could be um, applied to individual change. Uh, I don't think the behavior change wheel was necessarily designed to be used, for example, as a counseling tool, but I'm sure there are parts of it that would be highly relevant for that. Um, but I think it, the, the development is really around, um, you know, groups and population change. That's that's very interesting. Uh, let's have a short break and hear a few words from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. And now, like the last decade, there's been a lot of talk about sedentary behavior. And basically, there was the research field exercise physiology. And then we, when we found out more about sitting, there was a specific field of inactivity physiology, which, which came up. Should, do you think there should be the same thing in psychology, that there should be a specific field which is concentrating on, on the sedentary behavior? Well, that's that's a good observation. I, 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 whether we need a separate field, I, I would probably say no. But I would like us to to develop understanding and more knowledge around the psychology of sedentary behaviour. The reason I'm suggesting that we don't really want to make it stand out as a separate field is I think we need to understand that physical activity and sedentary behaviour have become more. Um, it's become more recognized that they are interrelated. So perhaps if I backtrack just a little, when we first got into sedentary behavior as a, as a field of study, I don't just mean myself, but lots of people, we tended to see sedentary behavior as completely separate from physical activity. And one of the reasons for that was that we, we knew that people could be physically active during the day, they go out for a run, for example, but they could also be highly sedentary and watch a lot of TV or have screen time in the evening. So if you can be both physically active and sedentary over a period of time, maybe the two behaviors are somewhat independent. Yes, there's some logic in that. And statistically, the two behaviors are not very highly correlated. Mm. But you can't say that the health effects of sedentary behavior are completely independent of how much physical activity you do. So that the the move within physical activity science is to recognize that there's a continuum of movement if you like from sleep to sedentary to light to moderate to vigorous and even highly vigorous mm-hmm. then it, it it tells you that 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 you know there is a continuum and the 24 hour movement model that's been used for some guidelines particularly for young people Um, will tell you that you need to look at all these things in combination. So in terms of the psychology of sedentary behavior, there may be a slightly different psychology to promoting less sitting and more standing and moving, but we don't really need um, a completely separate field and claiming that it's separate. I think it's part of the kind of physical activity psychology field. 
and we just need to develop a better understanding of of the behaviour of sitting and, and of sedentary um, and mm. not just borrow from physical activity psychology. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I came to this, we, we made one scientific abstract some years ago and we actually looked at the psychological theories for exercise and whether they are actually applicable to sedentary behaviour. And there's actually quite many things different if you think, for example, intrinsic motivation mm. when you do exercise you might get runners high it might be really exciting or whatnot but if you think avoiding sedentary behavior for example standing you probably don't don't get those all same same exciting feelings if you look at competence basically anyone almost anyone can stand but they probably cannot play baseball and and if you look at the norms basically most of the times the norms are encouraging activity but still standing in a meeting or standing in a wrong place is actually against the norms so i think there's just yeah. quite many things that are very different in these even though they are in the same continuum of of physical activity yeah you make you make some really excellent uh, points there ollie I, I agree with you totally in fact i, I did a chapter for uh, Glenn Roberts uh, motivation book a few years ago and um, we, we introduced the the notion of the different psychology between physical activity in, in at least in the form of structured exercise and sedentary behavior and the, the the conceptualization was that if you look at the effort involved well exercise involves high high effort Sedentary behavior doesn't involve effort at all. It's quite the reverse. If you look at the conscious processing that's involved to get you to the gym or to get you to a structured exercise session, there's a little bit of conscious effort involved. There's planning involved. There's no real conscious effort or planning when you when you become sedentary. So there are a number of constructs that you could uh, assess both physical activity and sedentary by, and they'd be a little different. Of course, there'll be some overlaps as well, but um, I, I agree with the point you make that there will be some, uh, certainly there will be some differences, yeah. Mm. And how, how do you see the importance of measuring sedentary behavior? Like if we compare it to exercise, it's quite easy to remember that yesterday I went to went in the gym, but in sedentary behavior, it's quite difficult to say that how much did I sit yesterday? So That's, how important yeah. in behavior change you see the effect of measuring? Yeah, uh, the, it, it's a big effect, actually. And if you're looking at self-reported sedentary behavior, um, uh, reporting total sitting time is, is extremely weak, extremely poor. So, yeah, you know, could you say how, how much you sat yesterday? I'm not sure I could. So... Um, that's where we need uh, measuring devices, and uh, the the whole area of uh, device based measurement, you know, obviously has has become very uh, prominent now. So, uh, but on the other hand, you know, there are specific sedentary behaviours, uh, TV viewing being an obvious one, use of a computer, and then we get into more nuanced uh, measures, if you like, or behaviours such as using um uh, tablets or phones which may not be sedentary you could be moving around in fact you're quite likely to be moving around and still using them so it the measurement side becomes much more complex as we advance the technology uh, mm, yeah, and, I... and and that's probably accounts for why we have rather poor data on some of these so-called newer devices well they're not really new are they i mean tablets and phones are not new anymore mm. but they are certainly more recent than TV viewing in the traditional sense or use of a, of a computer on a desk. Uh, so, so the point I'm making is that when we use self-report for some of these specific behaviors, they can work okay. So measurement of TV viewing has generally been shown to be reasonable, not perfect, but reasonable. Mm. And you look at the health outcomes of TV viewing, they often show up a little stronger as well. And that could be a function of the fact that we can measure it better. 
Um, mm. So yeah, measures measurements really important. We have to use a combination of, of self report and device based uh, measures. I think. Yeah, and how how do you see measuring in sedentary behavior? That if you are, for example, tracking it all the time, do you think it's it causes anxiety to persons because it's kind of omnipresent that all right now now I sit too much during this hour. For measuring exercise, it's a little bit different because you kind of get encouraged that all right I did it again today. How do you see? Should the sedentary behavior be just measured sometimes, or or like continuous? Well, if you mean measure in the research sense, you know, should we be picking up all of their sedentary behavior? That's one issue. Or do you mean for individuals to self-monitor for, if you like, motivational and behavior change point of view? Yeah, more more for the self-monitoring for behavior change yeah. itself. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's uh, that is quite important. So I think there are a couple of issues we we could discuss here. So first of all, self-monitoring is a well-known, you know, behavior change technique. I think most people are aware of that. And whilst we've always been able to self-monitor, it's only in the last few years we've got the availability of uh, some quite interesting and novel devices that help us do this a little bit easier, maybe better. Mm. Um so so i think self monitoring is is important the the uh the downside might be the f- particularly for sedentary behavior which we know is high frequency it occurs you know many many times throughout the day um uh, one of the problems would be how often should we be self monitoring and when does it become a nuisance So we have actually seen in some of our research studies where we've used self-monitoring devices that, yes, they can be very useful. They get positive feedback from quite a large number of participants, but they also get criticized for being a bit um, too intrusive. So I think we have to get a balance between, you know, when is it appropriate to because self-monitoring really is also about prompting, isn't it? You see Mm. your result. And and it prompts you to do something, or it prompts you to simply to say, "Well, that's great. I've done what I need to do." Um, and prompts don't always occur at the right time and in the in the right place. So I, I think we've still got a bit to learn on that. But um, you know, clearly, self monitoring is is important, particularly for sedentary behaviour, because it's a behavior that can go under the radar a bit you know we we could be sitting and and not really realize how long we've been sitting and so any kind of self-monitoring and prompting and awareness raising will um you know i think will be helpful for that kind of uh low intensity behavior yeah i i fully agree and also you can you can think that basically if you think weekdays your routines are quite similar. So basically the work day in the office is quite similar every week. So basically if you kind of find habits there to change, to be more active and less sedentary, I think you can you can kind of find the habits and then you don't need the self-monitoring all the time because you have found ways to be more active in your in your office office life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that 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 that's right, and uh, uh, I think routines and and uh, in similar environments, you know, prompt you somewhat subconsciously to get into certain behaviors, and of course, that is that is what habit is about. So I agree, we have got more structure and routine during our working hours, and uh, maybe it's those other times when we also need a bit more help to uh, to break out of more sedentary routines. So you know, again, this this just confirms the complexity of of, of this issue. It's it's, uh, it's not never quite as simple as uh, as sometimes we think. Mm. And and how do you see the relationship between habit and and motivation? Like when you when you need to change your behavior, first you need motivation, but after some time, basically for many things you don't need motivation. It is just habit. For example, like eating a, a proper breakfast, when you get it on a habit level, you don't need motivation to do it. You just do it. And I think mm-hmm. same can go even for running. It's just a habit that I go running uh, 
every every day on a certain time. So how do you see the relations between habit and meaning? Yeah, so I I I, I think um, I, I think the whole understanding of habit is still developing. Uh, some been some great work by Ben Gardner and other colleagues uh, trying to conceptualize habit and coming up with definitions and and so on. And I think that's great. And I, I think the notion of of habit alongside these more automatic processes, these more automatic forms of motivation is a really important advancement in our field. Um, I, I, I think that um, uh, motivation, okay, how can I say this? I've always believed that mo- motivational constructs are important. I've spent a lot of my career looking at those, and I think they're very important. But I don't think the solution is to expect people to be motivated in a strong sense to change some of these behaviors. Mm. Um, yes, there needs to be a level of motivation, of course. If we have no motivation, we won't do anything. But I think that the solution, uh, that's a bit of a naive uh, phrase, there is no one solution, but ha- uh, uh, moving towards a solution is that we make the behavior easier and more attractive to do, mm. as well as you know have help people to become motivated. So my argument against um, expecting people to be doing lots of vigorous physical activity, for example, beneficial though it is, my argument is that, well, I don't think many people are going to do that because it's it requires too much motivation. And therefore, we need to find a way of getting them to be active or getting them to be less sedentary that is reasonably attractive and reasonably easy to do. Now, one reason that standing desks have become quite successful Mm. in getting people off their chairs is that it's an easy thing to do. You've you've provided a structured environment that allows you to continue doing what you're doing and not not be sitting at the the same time. so we need to find behavior. We need to find ways that behaviors are perhaps made a bit easier to do and are, and are quite attractive to do. I'm sure many people listening to this will have seen the um, example of the music, the musical steps that were put into an underground station. I think in Sweden, mm. uh, the the piano uh, steps. I'm sure many people have seen that video. And so there's a classic example of where people will not climb stairs because it's a little bit of an effort. They'll stand on a moving escalator. Well, as soon as you make it more attractive, hmm. uh, they're not necessarily making it easier to do. They're just making it more attractive. Um, then people start to walk up the stairs because it makes a nice musical sound. If you can make it attractive or easier to do by moving the stairs much closer and moving the escalator further away or moving the elevator or lift further away making the stairs attractive then you've got a better chance so all these things of environmental shift and making things easier to do um, should should work and and you know let's be honest consumer behavior is driven that way we've made purchasing certain foods and certain uh, products and not always the healthy ones, of course, mm-hmm. much easier to buy, either because they're cheaper or they're very attractive or they're placed in the supermarket in a certain position. And now people buy those more readily, whereas in the past they may not have done. Yeah, Why aren't we doing this for physical activity? Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I was, I was living in Liverpool a couple of years, and when I went to the grocery store, I started paying attention that where do you have things, products that have chocolate in? And basically, when you mm. go to a Tesco Express, basically mm. everywhere in the store, they have placed something that have chocolate. It's just crazy when you start to pay attention. And then finding something healthy options, there's maybe fruits and something more, but the chocolate is everywhere and the beer. But finding something yeah. healthy is, is quite challenging. So I, I really see your point. Yeah. Yeah, and, and these people are experts actually at behavior change. We, we may not 
see them in that light, we think, well, they're not researchers, they're not academics, they're not psychologists. Well, hang on a minute. They, they've got a lot of expertise in consumer behavior. And what the one thing they want to do is to change consumer behavior uh, mm. towards their product and away from somebody else's. They've got a lot of expertise. So, yeah, we could learn a lot from that. Yeah, I think the problem is that you can make better business with things which have sugar in than something that you need to grow on the trees or on the fields, which are the healthy <laughs> things. So. Well, it's certainly a challenge. That that's for sure. We haven't uh, we haven't cracked that one, but uh, I think the principle still holds. And actually, if you if if you use that analogy with with food, maybe that is why we've got a challenge to get people out of their chairs, um, because sitting is actually quite rewarding and and while some people could sit for too long and feel like they're very um, uh, lethargic like sitting on a long plane journey and they want to get up and they want to stretch and they want to move the day-to-day -day sitting that we all engage in can be reasonably attractive and 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 you can't blame people coming in from a busy and, and hard day wanting to sit and be sedentary most of the evening. So we do have challenges like that. And, um, you know, we have to make these behaviors uh, a bit easier to do. We have to make uh, the environment uh, such that, that, that we don't sit all the time and we, we choose other things to do. Okay, let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. So, so you mentioned standing desks as a good example of uh, making it easier for people and more attractive. What else do you see in the offices? What could be done to make it more attractive and easy for people not to be sedentary? Yeah, I, I think that I mean, we, we can go back to very old-fashioned notions of, of education and um, uh, information. Now, of course, that's never enough, um, but putting up prompts and signs around the place, um, making it attractive for and acceptable for people to get up and move. Um, you might even have an office leader who... who um, uh, encourages, uh, you know, some activity w within a group. So I was in a, um, a set of meetings recently and um, I was I was working, we, we, we were testing out a, a, an app um, on the phone uh, that, that prompts you to do exercise at certain periods during the day, just very brief, short bouts of exercise. And uh, we were doing this and it, and it was a great, um, almost like an icebreaker. It, it was a great social thing to do. Uh, we were we were in danger of sitting a lot because we were working on laptops and, and, and so on. And we weren't in a formal office where we had uh, many options. Um, so, so, you know, providing um, the, these, uh, these environments where somebody could take the lead and encourage people to stand and encourage people to move. We have signs. We have attractive stair, uh, stairwells. Um, we don't design the buildings with... Um, uh, sedentary as the default we, we could mm -hmm. we could design them with more movement as a, as a default and we try to do this in our research group but you know we are also constrained by the way they've designed the building um, yeah but yeah. Uh, you know these are these are some of the things we try to do and I, I have noticed that for example in nordic countries you are kind of directed to the stairways and you need to look for the mm -hmm. elevator while in the US and UK, it's usually the opposite, that it's difficult to find the mm. stairway. How is it in Australia? Well, I would say, unfortunately, it's it's the more negative one. Um, so uh, that's an interesting observation from for, for you, for, for the Nordic countries. I, I, I've been there many times, but I, I, I wasn't sure whether that was the case. But I'm sure you're right. Uh, and But definitely in the UK and... And in Australia and the US, the the default option is the uh, the more sedentary option. Um, now there are some interesting um, exceptions to that. So, for example, there's a very nice new building at the University of Sydney, which uh, really highlights the staircase, and it's a very attractive stair, and it's the obvious route to take onto the next uh, floor of the building. 
and that's the way it's been designed. Mm. Um, so I'm sure there are exceptions, but unfortunately, the Australian culture is still one that is, you know, if you like, more traditional in in um, providing an environment where the sedentary option is uh, is the default option. Mm, yeah. And, and then if we move to exercise, you said that we should make it more attractive. And I think the even the word exercise it is, or the definition of exercise, it's, it's something that uh, activity requiring physical effort carried out to sustain or improve health and fitness. So basically there's even the motivation that you don't do it for enjoyment, you don't do it for play, you do it to improve your fitness. And and I think this is quite strongly in people's mind that who kind of do exercise that they they don't consider doing sports or playing, but they do to do exercise. So they go in the gym and they really see that all right, how many calories? How how could we change this that we people would be less focused on on some metrics or the actual fitness, but it yeah. would become yeah, great, 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 yeah, great point. I mean. Uh, Okay, first of all, you know, let, let, let's not, um, I, I won't be anti-exercise. Exercise is great. If people want to go to the gym, that's great. I've done a lot of that over my life and uh, we, we know it can have effects. It's very efficient. Okay, that's fine. But it's mm. not for everybody. And if you look back in over generations and, and, and the history of, of, of humans in the last, you know, 100 or so years, we didn't have gyms. Um, mm-hmm. people were active in other ways. They had to move around for transport. They had to move to do a job. And they had to move uh, a lot in the house to to um, to operate, uh, you know, keep a household going. So we, we had movement naturally within our lives. And, of course, we know that's what we lost, that that's the um, byproduct of, of, of the changes that, that uh, have occurred in our, our generation. Um so when it comes to exercise, it is something that a lot of people feel they have to fit into a busy day. And it's for some people, it's not the most pleasurable thing to do. Mm. So, yeah, we do need to uh, look at how we market exercise. And maybe the first thing is not even to call it exercise, call it something else, call it um, just physical activity, and also to get away from the fact that, um, or, or not to assume that everybody wants to exercise or be physically active for health. Um, it's almost like uh, the exercise is medicine agenda. Um, again, I understand why we call it exercise is medicine. It has a lot of traction and a lot of support. Mm. But is it really just medicine? Isn't it something more than that? You know, I take medicine when I'm ill and I don't take medicine when I'm not ill. So why would I think of exercise only as medicine? So so that's another thought we can have, just to be perhaps a little bit controversial. We should perhaps get away from this medicalization of physical activity and yeah. promote it from very much a sort of well-being point of view and just feeling good and being able to be more functional throughout our day and, and for longer in our lives. Yeah, that's that's a really good point about exercise as medicine. And we actually had a scientific symposium where we had a debate between two sides that the other ones thought that it should be promoted that way and the other that it shouldn't. And I think there's a misunderstanding in a way that exercise as medicine, I think it's good to educate the medical doctors and other professionals that it is effective or even more effective than the medicine but the message to to the people to individuals i think we shouldn't promote it that way mm. i think mm. there's a difference who who do you promote the exercise mm. as, as medicine yeah i i i, I think you're, you're right about appealing to the medical fraternity and that's a very important one we have to have them on side i remember many years ago um medical people were not interested in physical activity at all they didn't think it was that relevant so we, we did have a job to do in convincing them to get them on board and of course that's now happened so yeah exercise as medicine has some benefit as a slogan but um i i still think from a both a psychological point of view and a behavior change point of view 
to see physical activity simply as a health-related behavior, I, I don't think is is the answer. We can go back. So a big influence on me early days was the work of Rod Dishman from the United States. And Rod Dishman uh, edited some great books and wrote some great articles. And he did a re- one of the very first reviews on the determinants of physical activity, published in 1985. And what he said in there, along with a couple of other co-authors, one of which was Jim Salis, what he said was um, that people are likely to start physical activity. He, actually, he probably did say exercise for reasons of health, but they will maintain it for reasons of enjoyment. So health might be a good way of getting people interested, particularly if they feel that they need to improve their health. Maybe they're obese, maybe they've got a health problem, but it won't sustain their involvement. So we've got to look at um, exercise and physical activity from the point of view of both adoption or getting started, but also maintenance. And, And the latter, actually, we've done a rather poor job on. Um, so to come back to my main point is I, I think we shouldn't just assume that everybody will be active for health reasons. They will do it for lots of different reasons. And that needs mm. to be promoted a bit more, I think. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's kind of the problem with exercise. So basically, if you have other motivation than health, for example, let's take learning of skills. If you think the normal gym where you have machines that are kind of forcing you to certain movement pattern and ergometer cycling, it's there's no real skill improvement element involved. But if you compare it to playing badminton or, or doing martial arts, there's like an endless spectrum of learning skills which which might motivate. But the exercise has usually been done that there's no skill learning perspective in the long run yeah that that's a very good point and and actually for older adults um as they want to maintain greater independence and and an active life in the widest sense um those skills might have additional benefits of uh you know maintaining independence and 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 balance and skills and so on so and maybe those skills that you mentioned martial arts you could talk about dance you could talk about um, sports then maybe the intrinsic motivation elements kick in much uh, much more so yeah i i i agree i think uh, we need to look at this in a more holistic way perhaps hmm. yeah and also also the other thing is what i i usually think is that for me doing doing sports or being active it's often about play and and kind of quite many times it's taught that the play is for for children and the adults do do not play in a way only the professional athletes can still still play and enjoy it but i think i think it's a very motivating thing you you really get the flow you you enjoy the play most of people enjoy the feeling of play but that's also usually non-existent in in the exercise so how, how do you see how could we increase the play and and the skill learning in in exercise settings well i think there's a strong sort of cultural uh, element here of um there's a little bit of resistance to uh wanting to do these different forms of physical activity perhaps um, at different ages so whilst there's plenty of opportunities for children to play sports um, and there's opportunities for adults to play sports if they're good um, a lot of sports uh, don't offer it for just general participation Um, then there are exceptions to that I I play golf for example and golf you can play you know, at any time and you can play it well or you can play extremely badly. It usually doesn't make much difference. So, um, but not all sports, you know, often offer those kind of things. I'm actually taken by an example that I saw last year. I was visiting China and I was in the city of Tianjin and my hosts, uh, after we had a dinner, said, "Look, we're going to go out into the uh, into the town square. There was this big square next to the shopping centre and next to a big park." And I thought, "Well, why are we going into this square?" Well, when I got out there, 
I, I, all I could see were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people being physically active. It was mm. a, quite a warm night. It was dark, but there were people doing rollerblading. There were people doing martial arts. There were people dancing. There were even people um, cracking whips as a kind of skill. Um, mm. There were people doing art, artistic uh, pursuits. So they weren't physically active, but they, they were involved. It was absolutely wonderful to observe. Now, I can't explain how or why that got started and how it's sustained, but wouldn't mm. it be wonderful if we could see something like that across um, our, our towns and, and cities? Um, so, yeah, we, we've got to introduce this notion that physical activity is part of our lives, and, and maybe your suggestion is, is a good one. We need to get more skills involved and more intrinsic interest and, and and maybe the social element as well and provide all these opportunities for people to to do these activities without feeling inhibited by by their skills or their fitness yeah yeah that's a interesting thing about china I, i've been living there a couple of years and i noticed that people usually they use the athletic track even if they want to go for a walk they go to walk around the athletic track. And especially in the evening, there's huge amount of people on the athletic track doing everything from from like playing with some, some toys or some skill things and, and walking around the track. But I think they don't consider it exercise if it's no, not done no, on the right. track. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, it's an interesting one. I think we need more research on understanding what people think about these activities and how do they view them and and if they do view it purely as an exercise to get fit or get healthy, we, we need to find ways of perhaps broadening that approach. Mm, I I agree. And and how do you see if, if if we go to activity tracking that many people are tracking steps and many devices can track them accurately, but I think it's like I think more people concentrate on one variable lest they start to see other things. For example, like from cycling, you don't get steps. So maybe mm -hmm. maybe I don't cycle. I just try to walk. You don't do, maybe you don't have an incentive to do strength training. And also some people start to maybe even think that when they go to a beautiful forest for a walk, it says steps. How many mm -hmm. steps did I got? And they forgot the forgot the birds and and the beautiful forest. So, how how do you see this kind of single metrics for people's? Actually, there mind are some people. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Ollie. I, I, there are some people that actually who don't like to uh, engage in those. Um, so it's 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 self monitoring and prompting again. Um, that they would rather do what you suggested which is if they go for a walk in, in the forest just to enjoy the nature and enjoy both the physical activity and the surroundings um and i, I would encourage that and i i think those devices and those methods of self-monitoring serve the purpose of getting people into an activity and and giving them some kind of target and goal but i don't think we should see them as a, a, a as a never-ending um, strategy. I think after a while you can put them to one side. You might take them up again later, but you know uh, they're really to get you started and to give you something to aim for. So, so I had a uh, I had a Fitbit I used for uh, many months at one point, partly out of curiosity, but um, I, I put it to one side. I didn't need it after a while. I was it was simply confirming what I was doing anyway, and mm. I, I like to I like to keep the activity as varied uh, as, as possible and to try to integrate it as much as possible into my life. And uh, that works for me. And I don't need these self-monitoring devices much, although this app that I've been using to prompt me to do exercise, uh, an exercise every hour, which I say is part of a research project, but I find that, mm. yeah, quite helpful, uh, particularly if I've been, um, you know, working in an office all day. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can really see that. Let's have a short break and hear a few words from our sponsor. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. And how would you see that 
the moderate vigorous physical activity it's very effective but most of people are not doing light activity is probably less effective but it's easier to do how do you see on a population level how to which one to promote how to mm. uh, which one is kind of better for promotion in in population level yeah, you've summed it up very well. Of course, uh, I think as the intensity decreases, uh, there's a better chance we can uh, bring people in and get them to do that. Of course, we would like them to do more, uh, both in terms of duration and, and intensity. Uh, and, and maybe if we start people out with lighter forms of physical activity, like walking to work, uh, over maybe even a short distance um, or walking distances when normally they would take the car, um, mm. doing a bit more activity around the house when they would otherwise be sitting. If we can get them to do these things, it might be, we don't know, but it might be the gateway to them um, doing more later on. So I'm actually a big believer in uh, light physical activity, more incidental physical activity, um, part of which could be at the upper end of light. So, you know, some moderate, uh, getting into moderate stair climbing. Uh, some could be very clearly light where you're just walking between rooms and so on. Um, or better still, walk to the shops rather than drive to the shops. So, uh, you know, I, I think we shouldn't dismiss light physical activity, even though the effects, of course, will be, will be less. What we need to do mm. is get people into the behaviour and then we will, then we can worry about um, making uh, gains uh, later on. Uh, that's that's the way I generally see it. Yeah, I I agree with that. And, and we have tried. We have a product related to activity and sedentary behavior tracking. And and we have approached it many times that maybe the easiest step is to break the long sitting periods. Like if you sitting more than half an hour without standing up even for for one second or one minute that's a long sitting period and maybe the easiest thing for people is first to try to break those it only takes like one minute of standing that you kind of didn't sit long and then when you actually get success in in some behavior change maybe the next step is then to start walking the short ones and maybe in the long run it's even even the moderate vigorous intensity activity do you see that it could go like step by step yeah i think it's probably a mistake to uh, market physical activity only as um, moderate to vigorous and uh, this is where I think this whole 24-hour model might be an interesting one to consider. I know not everybody likes it, but where you're trying to reduce your sitting time and you're increasing your, um, well, both light and moderate to vigorous physical activity. Um, so I think we're getting a more holistic view of, of movement and it's more realistic and it matches what people used to do when they were more physically active. Uh, hmm. as, as I said before, the moderate to vigorous physical activity, with some exceptions, um, probably didn't occur in people's lives, um, you know, too much in the past. But they did do a lot of light physical activity, a lot of basic movement, movement around the feet a lot, and we've lost that. And so I, I'm, I'm still a believer that we need to do more. Uh, light physical activity if we go back to jim levine's concept of neat you know the, mm. the non-exercise activity thermogenesis so we you know he he's he's he made this case 20 years ago that we should be moving um perhaps in a lighter non-exercise way but but throughout the day let's let's accumulate as much movement as we can but it's not exercise mm. and of course that's led naturally into the sedentary behavior uh, sitting reduction agenda so i think there's a lot to be to be said for that now you know of course if you can get people to do more moderate and vigorous physical activity great if you can get people to do hit and vigorous physical activity well fine that's going to get you mm. pretty strong rewards in terms of fitness and health um, but let's be realistic that's not going to happen for a large number of people 
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. So if, if we go a little bit more in the research, if, if you try to predict the future, what do you think is the what what is the next big thing in sedentary behavior research? Well, I think what's happened over the last 15 to 20 years, sedentary behavior has, has sort of really escalated over the last 10 years and, and had a foundation in the decade before that with, with um, smaller groups um, looking at it. And what's happened now is I think we're, we're starting to understand, at least from a health outcomes point of view, that um, there are certain at-risk groups for sedentary behavior uh, and those are the people that also don't do much physical activity. So mm. I, I think, you know, we, we shouldn't expect that everybody um, is at risk of uh, major chronic disease simply by sitting uh, for, t- for too long in the day. It's not a good thing to do, but um, mm. there'll be certain groups of individuals who are probably most at risk. And, uh, you know, the obvious ones would be those sitting long periods of time at work and not doing any exercise or, or structured physical activity in any way. Um, so, so that's one challenge is who do we target and how do we get people to to change those behaviours in, in an appealing and feasible way? Um, so I, I think that the next step is to look much more at the combination of physical activity and sedentary behaviour. And I think one of the things that we need to do more work on is around muscle strengthening. And and while some people think, well, that's just part of the physical activity agenda, I think it's also related to the sedentary agenda. I think you could realistically get people to do more muscle strengthening exercises as a way of breaking up their sitting. Um, and, and that would also you know, help us meet guidelines around strength training which typically we haven't um, mm. you know we haven't met i mean most people don't even know they exist and uh, yeah. i'm doing some uh, interesting work with um, my colleague jason benny here in australia he's leading some really great work around muscle strengthening and uh, i i think it's going to become more and more important area combining physical activity and and, and sedentary behavior yeah, yeah, that's that's an important point. And I think quite often we talk about steps, we talk about walking, but when you do office work, probably you get more musculoskeletal problems in your upper body, which is then more about more about resistant kind of movements for the upper body. Yeah. So I think those should be also promoted, like you said. But I think, you know, I think one of the challenges there will be a behavior change challenge. Uh, whilst we can get people to walk up to a point, mm. uh, if you provide a, an attractive environment, I'm fortunate, I live in a housing, uh, I live in a house which is quite close to some lakes. And, uh, you know, you go out there at this time, of, it's an evening time for me now, you go out there now, there'll be quite a few people walking around the lakes. It's an attractive environment. And then around some of these these uh, parks and lakes, they have these exercise facilities, basically, you know, muscle strengthening stations. I'm sure you've seen them. Well, they're usually mm. unused. So how can we get people to adopt the muscle strengthening activity that they need? Is that too much like hard work? Is that requiring too much effort? Who knows? Mm. So I think that that's the next uh, stage. I think we need to understand uh, how we can get people into these into these other activities. Yeah, I think it's it's a good point. You can do the gyms outside, and and also that if you do upper body training, you can do quite intensive loading for your muscles without mm. breaking sweat. Which sometimes, mm. for example, in the office, you don't want to get sweaty or too much out of breath. So it's yeah. it's a good way to get it done something intensive without without sweating. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. And and something about sedentary behavior research and we we covered a little bit of socioeconomic status in the beginning. Do you think there might be an effect that uh, high socioeconomic status is usually associated with more sitting? They are knowledge workers and do less physical work but then it's also 
the lower socioeconomic people they they live a less healthy lifestyle so these are kind of uh, confounding factors could it be that we underestimate the risks of sitting due to these these things yeah i certainly think that's possible and i think it confirms the idea that these things are complex um i i think the type of job uh, i mean the middle manager type job might be uh, the administrative job might be most at risk of high levels of sitting i think you'll probably find mm. that more senior managers are up and about moving between meetings um probably more than we think um you know i look at my typical day uh, so I, i'm running a fairly large research center now with a separate research group um mm. i don't actually sit for long periods of time um oh well, i've got a standing desk as well but i, I don't have to sit very yeah. long at my desk i'm up and about meeting people yes i'm sitting in meetings at times but it's quite sporadic going from one yeah. meeting to another uh whereas i think some people if they're an administrator they could sit at their desk pretty much the whole day if they if they wanted to so yeah we need to look at that we need to look at their coexisting behaviors um uh, their diet their physical activity their stress levels and and then look yeah all, all in relation to socioeconomic status i think it's a complex but important field that that we need to advance Mm, yeah and i wanted to ask ask also about this uh i was looking your your publications uh before the podcast and i saw for example your paper physical activity and mental health and children and adolescents an updated review of reviews and an analysis of causality so i think this uh that you are linking causality between physical activity and mental health I think that would be probably for our research listeners interesting that how do you actually analyze causality which is quite uh, complicated yes, it, it, it is complicated and uh it, it's uh, quite a difficult thing to do so i've done this with a couple of topics now i've also done it with sensory behavior and obesity uh i've, mm. I've got interested in uh trying to go beyond just uh reviewing a field and um drawing conclusions from a systematic review uh, now there's a long standing set of so-called criteria for judging causality from epidemiological research that was proposed back in the 1960s by mm. uh, by um uh, Bradford he's known as uh, Austin uh, Bradford Hill um, yeah. and what hill proposes a number of criteria and i i thought well this is been, this is interesting and others have done this rod dishman again has done it in one of his books on epidemiology um and the net mutri did it on a chapter of depression and and uh, physical activity and clinical depression so you can look at things like strength of relationship between physical activity and a mental health outcome you could look at how consistent the relationship is is there a dose response relationship is there experimental evidence so there are a number of factors you can judge it by and mm. to come to then some conclusion as to whether you think the link is causal or not so with that review with young people um if we looked at uh, cognitive functioning for example as an outcome which is a relatively new or well, i shouldn't say new but a very rapidly developing field then you look at the strength of association and you look at the experimental evidence and so on and the picture was pretty positive you you could probably make a case for for a causal link um where self esteem was a little bit more murky was a little mm. bit unclear uh it's not to say that there isn't a relationship or even a causal one but we weren't really able to conclude that so you know you look at these different factors and you come to a conclusion as to whether the relationship can be considered causal or not yeah yeah that's it's it's a very interesting approach and i haven't actually seen it used before uh how how often is it is used in the field of physical activity sedentary behavior or psychology sorry what how often is that used was that your question yeah how often it is used in the in the field or your not, field not a lot as i say i've seen a few examples but 
Um, and of course, they're, they're not set in stone, those criteria. I mean, you could debate them and there are articles, you know, questioning the Hill criteria and, and are they the right ones and how do you judge them and so on. Um, you know, a, a, an obvious question is, well, how, how strong does an effect have to be mm-hmm. for, for it to contribute towards a, a conclusion that the relationship is causal? Um, you know, there's a lot of debate about, you know, what effect sizes um, mean and how strong is strong. And if you've got an mm. odds ratio, how high does it need to be and so on. So there's a lot of subjectivity, actually, in, in coming to those conclusions. So uh, to answer your question, there isn't a lot out there on in, in uh, exercise science, but um, I, I, I think we can... Um, you know, we could move that way and, and it, it at least generates debate and it generates uh, ideas in research as to how we can strengthen that relationship. Mm. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting. It's a framework to approach, like you said, is subjective and maybe it doesn't, mm. it, it never proves the causality that it's for sure, but it, it at least gives an indication how probable it is it's it is that there's a causality involved yeah yeah no that's right it is it's a it's a kind of probability it's kind of subjective but i think it takes us a step forward rather than a step back so i i'm, I'm in favor of it yeah I, i think it's useful although when when i saw the title i was thinking like physical activity and mental health that if you think it from the mechanisms biological mm-hmm. mechanisms there's quite many steps that If you start to think that all right, physical activity, you have muscles contracting, breathing rate going up, and then something happens, something, something, and then I don't know, something happens in the brain function that causes problems in the mental health. It's it's really a long, long process or long, long chain of events. But yeah, when you analyze with this model. Uh, equally biological plausibility is one of the criteria you can you can look at and um, you know I think for, so for example if you look at the relationship between physical activity and depression there are a number mm-hmm. of biologically plausible mechanisms that support that link um, mm-hmm. you can't really say that for self-esteem it doesn't seem to work in quite the same way that doesn't mean that self-esteem can't be shown to be causal but the biological mechanism may work better for one uh, outcome than another. Cognitive functioning, there's a lot of biological um, plausibility in brain image research and and neuroscience. Uh, Mm. So it's part of the bigger picture. It's part of the picture. Yeah, yeah. No, I I find it really, really interesting uh, method. So we have talked already a bit over one hour Uh, is there something else you would like to discuss? Uh, well, it's been a great discussion. I, I, I don't think I'm going to add anything, but I, I appreciate the opportunity and you raise some great issues and, and great questions and I hope it's useful to people. Yeah, I think it was really interesting interesting discussion. So let's let's hope people will will like it. So it was an honor to have you as a guest and and thank you. Oh, thank you, Ollie. Thoroughly enjoyed it. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.